Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Today we begin what will be an eight-sermon journey through what are commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. And this being the first, I think it's appropriate for me to take just a brief moment to uh, speak to the collection as a whole and their place within the greater sermon. The word beatitude is taken from the Latin word for blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the weak and the meek and so forth. So the term beatitude draws attention to the prominence of the word blessed. Now, blessed is very, it's a very easy word to misinterpret uh, because of its ubiquitous uh, usage in our culture. The word blessed, we use it for everything, and so it's become trivial to us. But biblically speaking, it carries profound significance. If you've ever studied or, or heard somebody teach through or preach through the Beatitudes before, it's popular to translate that as the word blessed as happy which I think is appropriate, but my concern is the word happy also dies the death of overusage in our culture. The best way to get at the meaning of this bless, this beatitude, I believe, is to consider its antithesis. You'll recall after the fall, God pronounced a curse on creation. Cursed is the ground because of you. And this curse is synonymous with the fall throughout Scripture. So what's wrong with the world? The world has been cursed because of sin. And that is its condition until the end of the story in Revelation when God will finally declare, no longer shall there be anything cursed. Well, this divine curse is the opposite of divine blessing. Therefore, the meaning of the word blessed here is nothing short than life without the curse. It's not good circumstances within this fallen world. It is actually the removal of the fall itself. In short, it's Eden. The blessedness of Eden survive now only in the recesses of our deepest longings. The, that beatific, beatitudes, that beatific vision of the perfect life with God, quite literally heaven on earth. Okay, now recall the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount from a couple weeks ago. It is Jesus' manifesto of the kingdom of God and its revolution on earth. And the promise of that revolution is that it will again yield heaven on earth. 
But Jesus begins his sermon with this shocking news. That coming kingdom is something that can be experienced now. The kingdom of God indeed is at hand. The Eden that is to come can be enjoyed in the present. By recommitting ourselves to life as God commanded, we can recapture life as God intended. Simply put, you don't have to wait to get to heaven to taste the life of heaven. But it's not going to be easy. Because as we will see, each of these beatitudes runs counter to every natural impulse within. The beatitudes are not a call to a better life. They are a call to a new life. This is not self-improvement. This is self-denial, knowing that in the death of that denial is promised the resurrection of the blessedness of Eden. That's the promise at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And it begins today with the first of these Beatitudes. And I want to introduce this one with a story that I heard last week. While I was in England for my uh, PhD work last week, Abby and I got to take a tour of the House of Parliament in London, which was absolutely incredible. Now listen, I like our republic a lot more than theirs, but one of the things I love about theirs is um, all these regal traditions that they have surrounding it. One of those traditions is that every year uh, the legislative session begins with a visit from Her Majesty the Queen. The Queen puts on her royal crown and robe and walks down this uh, famous hallway lined with the Queen guards and, and their whole uniform, you know, with their swords. They, they, they even hit the concrete wall with their swords, so sparks fly up while the queen goes down the hallway, and she enters the House of Lords and sits on the throne and essentially commissions the legislators to enact the will of the people. Well, a few years ago, you know, Queen Elizabeth is in her 90s now, and she was too old and weak to climb the stairs to, that leads into this grand entrance hallway. And so they decided that they're going to have to start letting her take the elevator up. Well, the first year they did this, they made a mistake. The queen gets into the elevator. The lift operator um, accidentally hits the button for the wrong floor. They didn't press the button for the entrance into parliament. They pushed the button for the maintenance floor of Westminster. So the elevator goes up. The doors open. And Alice from the cleaning crew with her head down, pushing her cleaning cart as she always done, does, walks into the elevator and pins the Queen of England against the wall and the doors close behind her. She nearly faints, comes to her senses, and then says something I'm not allowed to say in a sermon. What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit? It's blessed are you when you experience what Alice experienced in that moment, when you no longer see yourself for who you are in the presence of others, but for who you are in the presence of the King. The kingdom of God cares nothing about the competition game that we all play with one another. How great you are in comparison to others, how moral you are in comparison to others, how important you are in comparison to others. These questions that dominate our world 
matter nothing within the kingdom of God. The only comparison game within God's kingdom is who are you in comparison to the king of the kingdom? And the only appropriate answer worthy of that question is poor in spirit. Let me go ahead and give you the sermon outline, not just for this week, but for the next eight sermons I preach, because they all follow the same simple pattern. With each beatitude, Jesus gives us a kingdom posture and a kingdom promise. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the posture of the kingdom. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the promise. Let's begin with this kingdom posture. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Before we go into further detail of what exactly the poor in spirit means, I feel the need to explain what it does not mean. There are two common misconceptions. The first is that it is speaking to physical poverty. It says poor in spirit, not poor in finances. You can be poor financially and haughty in spirit. And conversely, you can be rich financially and yet poor in spirit. Now, that being said, I should also say this to us who live amid such affluence, often physical poverty yields spiritual poverty. Likewise, physical wealth renders spiritual poverty much more elusive, according to Jesus. Though not impossible, it is harder for the rich and powerful to at the same time be poor in spirit. So there is somewhat of a connection here, but it is true that the beatitude is not speaking about our finances. The second misconception, and the one I think is more common misconception, is that the the poor in spirit amounts to some form of self-hatred. So consider uh, Winnie the Pooh characters. Everyone knows that Tigger is not a picture of poor in spirit. The wonderful thing about Tigger is that Tigger is a wonderful thing. The most wonderful thing about Tigger is I'm the only one. I think we all know that's not poor in spirit. The problem is that people therefore assume the poor in spirit must be Tigger's opposite character, Eeyore. Woe is me, my life is terrible, mope around all day in an endless cycle of self-loathing. This is not poor in spirit. Tigger and Eeyore suffer from the same condition. One loves himself, one hates himself, but the common denominator is self-obsession. Those who love the mirror and those who hate the mirror are both obsessed by the image in the mirror. And this is very important lest I reinforce self-hatred in this room and somehow bless that as poverty of spirit. That is not a beatitude life. That is a cursed life. Stephen mentioned Dr. Brian Chappell um, before the service. I love Dr. Brian Chappell. Uh, He was my preaching mentor in seminary. He has preached far greater sermons than I ever have preached, will preached, But he preached the funeral of our former pastor um, many years ago who took his own life. And his sermon text for that funeral service was our passage this morning. And with good intentions, which I totally understand and I know exactly what he was doing, trying to console a grieving community, he labeled our pastor's self-hatred and suicide as poverty in spirit, which could not be further from the truth. The poor in spirit do not hate themselves in their lives, for Jesus says, blessed is the life of the poor in spirit. So if it's not financial poverty, if it's not self-hatred, what is it? 
The poor in spirit are those who have achieved the blessed freedom of telling the truth about themselves. If we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not within us. Okay. But to those who have the courage to admit their sinfulness, the truth is within us and that truth will set you free and that freedom is the blessedness of the poor in spirit that they get to enjoy. Do you know what Jesus is saying in the very first words of his Sermon on the Mount? You're going to have to admit that you fall miserably short of the Sermon on the Mount. The first step to obey the teachings of Jesus in this sermon is your willingness to admit that you have failed to obey the teachings of Jesus in the sermon. Simply put, poverty of spirit is telling the truth. It's not loving the mirror nor hating the mirror. It's eyes off the mirror and onto Jesus and confessing that what you discover with that sight is pretty bad. Now, in our tradition, we are conditioned to confess that we are sinners. We say it all the time. We have no problem saying it. But this does not necessarily mean that we are experiencing the blessedness that belongs to the poor in spirit. I'll tell you who the poor in spirit are. Not necessarily those willing to confess that they are sinners, but those willing to confess what type of sinners they are. Are you willing to go there? Are you willing to go beyond the comfortable, I'm a sinner like everyone else, and venture into the disturbingly uncomfortable arena of this is how I have sinned, these are my besetting sinful struggles, this specifically is what I see clearly in myself when I see clearly my Jesus. So many people are willing to call themselves sinners, but when it comes to specificity, especially when we're confronted with it, especially when we're exposed with it, when it comes to actually admitting where you specifically fall short of the king's glory, when that is demanded of us, it evokes denial, defensiveness, hiding, excuse-making, anything to avoid telling the truth about just how poor in spirit we truly are. But Jesus is here, at the beginning of his sermon on the kingdom, his kingdom manifesto with a blessed invitation to just tell the truth. Aren't you exhausted? It's not a blessed life. The excuse making, the lying, the cover-ups, the defensiveness, all that it takes to maintain the veneer of one who is not poor in spirit, it's an exhausting life, not a blessed life. But in our passage, that exhausting life is being interrupted by Jesus with a strange invitation. You could just come clean. You're actually allowed to name what you fear to name. O sinner, you're allowed to be a sinner. And when I say sinner, I'm not talking about the generic type. I'm talking about what you are tempted to hide. You're allowed to admit that too. And in so doing, finally discover this beatific truth, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then it gets even better because on the other side of that confession awaits the most unlikely of promises. 
The kingdom posture is the poor in spirit. Now let's look at the kingdom promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a remarkable statement from the king. The kingdom he has come to proclaim belongs not to the worthy, but to the unworthy. The only one fit for the kingdom are those unfit for the kingdom. Simply put, if you want in, confess that you shouldn't get in. Can you think of any other realm like this? Certainly not the way our world works. I just flew all the way to England to sit down for an interview to prove that they should let me into their program. And any blemish on my resume, like my GPA in college, that was, shall we say, not a GPA they were used to seeing from candidates. Any blemish, I had to prove to them that despite that noticeable flaw, here's my body of work that more of them makes up for it. Please, no, I'm a worthy candidate. And of course, that's how they have to run their program. That's how everything runs in our world. You want a job? Prove you should have it. You want a loan? Prove that you're eligible. You want to be called a legit SEC football program? Prove it by beating Florida. This is how our world works, and this is how we want our world to work. I don't want a poor in spirit football team. This is also how religions work. Every religion is a system to prove your worthiness. That's what they all are. Study any of them, and what you will find at the bottom of their philosophy is blessed are the worthy in spirit. They are all religious spins on how our world operates. Prove yourself worthy. And then here comes Jesus with a manifesto outlining his religion, and the first words out of his mouth is that his kingdom belongs not to the worthy, but to the unworthy. Or conversely, if you think you're worthy, you're not welcome in my kingdom. Listen, I'm not pretending poverty of spirit is easy. I just said in the first point that it demands we admit what we spend our days trying to hide. Poor in spirit goes against everything natural to us in this world. So it's not easy. But you have to admit unworthiness is easier to obtain than worthiness. So Jesus, you're telling me that all I, have to be, all I have to do to be welcomed into your kingdom is to admit that I shouldn't be welcomed into your kingdom. I, can do a, I, can, I can't do a lot of things, but I think I can pull that one off. Or can you? Because this type of humility is rare in our world that says, blessed are the rich in spirit. So let me be very clear with all of us, because I think I owe that especially to the proud among us. If you think you've got it all together, if you think that you're better than others, if you think your resume is impressive, if you're looking toward your successes, your money, your power, your intellect, your beauty, your opinions, your parenting, your morals, I could just go on and on. If you look at your successes and think you're something special, then I'm sorry, you're just not welcome here. You're welcome in our church. Love to have you come around, you're just not welcome the kingdom that we proclaim. You're not welcome at this table of the poor in spirit. But friends, if you're willing to look past your seemingly impressive resume and venture down into the depths of what you know is truly there, 
If you're willing to admit what you know is there, but you're trying to hide from it by amassing that impressive resume, if you're willing to compare yourself not to others, but to the holy resume of Jesus and confess that in comparison to him, I am utterly bankrupt in spirit, then by your newfound unfitness, you are finally fit to be welcomed with open arms by the king into his kingdom. Let me tell you the rest of the story about Alice in the elevator of the queen. There was this awkward moment of silence the cleaning lady face to face in a closed elevator with her majesty. And the silence is broken by the queen's uncontrollable laughter, which is so Queen Elizabeth. If you're a fan of them, like my wife, she tells me about Queen Elizabeth all the time. All right, so this is Queen Elizabeth. And then the queen does something crazy. Nobody would have faulted her for having this funny moment with the Westminster uh, cleaning crew. Then, you know, Alice... It's time to step off the elevator so the queen could go back down for her entrance to parliament. But the queen says to her, stay on the elevator with me. And they go down, the doors open, and the queen and the cleaners step off the elevator. And Queen Elizabeth with her crown and robe and Alice with her cleaner's uniform process down the hallway to the House of Lords. And then uh, several years later, when Alice retired from her cleaning job, Queen Elizabeth invited her to high tea at Buckingham Palace. Friends, that illustration fails us. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will get to visit the kingdom of heaven. He shockingly says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's like the queen saying, here's your key to Buckingham Palace. It's time for you to move in. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry to God, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then it's true. We are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Friends, the poor in spirit who look to Jesus are not just welcomed by Jesus into his kingdom. They become co-heirs with the king of the kingdom of heaven. And so as it turns out, in one verse out of Jesus' mouth in the Sermon on the Mount, the lowliest positioned are exalted to the highest position. Brothers and sisters, in the coming weeks and months, we're going to be talking a lot about the demands of the king for the people of his kingdom. And as I said a couple weeks ago, we're going to consider them well. We're going to take them seriously and actually do what King Jesus tells us to do. But bless his name, he begins with this demand for a reason. The first demand of the kingdom is that you are unworthy of the kingdom. The first expectation of the Sermon on the Mount is the humble and contrite confession that you have and will fall miserably short of the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't mean we don't try. With every fiber of our being, this becomes our life's ambition. But let us never, ever deceive ourselves into thinking we have what it takes. You don't. You are not worthy of the kingdom of God, which according to the king is precisely what makes you so worthy of the kingdom of God. Why? Because those willing to admit their unworthiness of the kingdom discover a king willing to die to make them worthy for his kingdom. And that, at the end of the day, is why the poor in spirit are so blessed.
because Jesus takes their poverty and hands them the riches of his kingdom. Let me pray. And so, Lord, we come now to the table of the poor in spirit and find a king who says, my kingdom belongs to you. Would you give us that tension? Humble us by what is true and then exalt us by what is true of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.